0: It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Valerie Harper episode of The Muppet Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Levy. Here with me today are
1: Christy Bauer,
0: Adam Grossworth,
2: Michal Richardson,
0: and our own very special guest star, Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Hi, Jennifer.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. A New York Times bestselling author, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, has written seven pop culture history books, including Seinfeldia, When Women Invented Television, Mary and Lou and Rhoda and Ted, and Sex in the City and Us. Her work appears in many publications, including BBC Culture, The New York Times Book Review, Vice, New York Magazine, and Billboard. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets.
3: I have loved the Muppets since my childhood, growing up watching them when when it was on, you know, when it was originally on. I was born in the middle of the 70s. So I really grew up watching it and um, I've been re-watching it since it got on Disney+. Plus. So I've been re-watching and it's fascinating to see how many times like a sketch comes on and my brain, like there's just like an ancient part of my brain that lights up and goes like, yes, I know what this is. I remember this. Uh, It's been really fun to revisit.
0: Oh, I'm smiling and nodding in a way that would be great (laughs) if this was not a podcast. (laughs) Adam, uh, situate us. Where are we this week?
4: We do have uh, one small correction in the Ben Vereen episode. We speculated about the, Term blockbuster as a trigger for crazy Harry. Uh, the blockbuster was in fact a bomb in World War II, and that's where the term originated before becoming the entertainment word that we know today. So, oops and kaboom. I was expecting a correction <laughs> about quaaludes. Nope, nope, we got that right. <laughs> I mean, not whether or not anybody we, was on them, but yeah, we, we
2: didn't. What, we don't know if we guessed it right.
4: No, but we know what they are. Tonight, we are talking about Season 1, Episode 20 of The Muppet Show, starring Valerie Harper. It was taped on October 26th to 28th, 1976, and it aired very soon thereafter. On November 22nd, 1976, it was the 10th episode to air in New York City. Just for the sake of a little bit of continuity that isn't, Vincent Price was the 16th episode to air uh, in New York. So um, there's continuity for us, but not for the people in the past. On the front page of the New York Times on this day, this is a, a little bleak, but it's relevant to our '70s and '80s interests and also uh, to my neighborhood. There was an explosion on the Freshen Up line of the Chiclay Gum Factory. Remember, Freshen Up—that gum with the like gel center that would squirt in your mouth. Oh, children so of the '70s yes. and '80s. Yes, yeah. Oh, uh, so the factory still exists, or the building still exists in Long Island City, Queens. It is no longer a gum factory. There was an explosion. It's actually a terrible story, but. I actually remember that gum fondly. In happier news, this episode was followed on CBS by a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And I'd be remiss if I did not mention that this is the special in which Woodstock joyfully yanks on a wishbone, which is real bleak. And that was followed by something called Carnival of the Animals, in which Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck make their concert debut, according to the ad. And at nine on NBC, uh, you could watch the world premiere movie, The Savage Bees. (laughs)
2: Why though?
4: <laughs> okay. I just read them. I don't I don't know. It's obviously not streaming anywhere, but you can Would see watch. the ad in our show notes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd listen to that band. To introduce
5: our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to
0: you. Valerie Harper was a beloved sitcom actress, best known for playing Rhoda Morgenstern first on the Mary Tyler Moore show and then later on her own spin-off, Rhoda. She grew up all over the place, moving every few years due to her father's job. She began taking dance classes at a young age, initially hoping for a career in ballet. In her teenage years, the family landed in New Jersey, so she was able to enroll in the Young Professional School in New York City. Her parents split up, and her mom took her siblings back to their previous home in Oregon. But she stayed in New York, living in a women's residence during the week with her dad in New Jersey on the weekends so she could pursue her career. It paid off, and she made her dancing debut with a six-week stint in the Radio City Music Hall Court of Ballet. A long-term career in ballet was not meant to be, but Valerie did make her way onto Broadway, first in the chorus of Take Me Along, and then later in a number of shows choreographed by Michael Kidd. Little Abner, Wildcat, Subways Are for Sleeping, Uh, and in that final one, that's where she befriended a young Michael Bennett, and she credits him with encouraging her to pursue acting. Michael Kidd brought Valerie to Hollywood to be in the film adaptation of Little Abner in 1959, and while she had a couple of small TV roles in the early 60s, she wouldn't settle in LA until the 70s. In the early 60s, she got involved taking classes with Paul Sills, who was the founder of Second City. Through that, she met and eventually married Richard Shaw, who was also part of that troupe. Henson fans know him as the star of Jim Henson's experimental television film, The Cube, which aired in 1969. Valerie would eventually also be accepted into the troupe as well. After the JFK assassination, she got very involved in civil rights, and she helped form the Seven Arts Chapter of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, which was a chapter specifically meant to activate members of the entertainment industry in New York City to work for civil rights. Uh, And she did a lot of jail support for protesters, so she would go to protests but stay out of the way of anything that could be considered civil disobedience so she could go to jails after the fact and, like, bail out her comrades. Uh, And then eventually she also got very involved in the women's movement as well. Around 1966, she moved to Hollywood at the encouragement of Carl Reiner, who directed her husband in The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. Uh, While they were there, Paul Sills invited both Valerie and her husband to be in Story Theater, which was a devised theater piece based on folk tales and fairy tales that started in LA and eventually played Broadway. In between, when she... Accepted that job, and when rehearsals began, she was in a tiny little show in L.A. where she was spotted by a casting director who was working on a new sitcom for Mary Tyler Moore. And uh, after a relatively quick audition process, she was cast as Rhoda, uh, and that was 1970. She was on that show for a few years, and then 1974 she got her own spinoff, which ran for four additional years. As she says to Kermit in this episode, she appears on the Muppet Show during a hiatus from filming Rhoda. She would win four Emmy Awards for playing Rhoda, three for supporting actress when she was on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and then once more as lead actress on her own show. In 1986, she made her big return to situation comedy as the star of Valerie, and due to conflicts with the producers, she left the show after the second season. Her character was killed off and replaced by fellow Muppet Show guest star Sandy Duncan, who played her sister-in-law who moves in with a family to help out while they're grieving the loss of their mother. Uh, And the show was renamed first as Valerie's Family, and then as the Hogan Family. Later in her career, she returned to the stage, touring in Gold's Balcony, which she also filmed, and you can see that on Tubi, and Looped, which was a play about Tallulah Bankhead, which briefly made it to Broadway in 2010. She had a long and public battle with cancer, first fighting lung cancer in 2009, and then in 2013, she was told she had a rare brain cancer and only three months to live. She made it all the way to 2019, uh, but she did pass away at the age of 80. So that's the very brief overview of her career. She was also in a, a number of movies, but uh, nothing that really made a big splash. But I know, Jennifer, you have some some additional information to share about her career.
3: Yeah, I was just going to sort of situate us because I couldn't help thinking about this since I wrote a book about the Mary Tyler Moore show. So while I was watching this episode of The Muppets and she mentions Rhoda, I was like, okay, where are we in the Rhoda journey? And Rhoda's actually a super interesting show. Um, in the sense that, I don't know, they just, they went through a lot. It was a lot of drama and kind of, you mentioned it was only four years, but so Rhoda was a really big deal when she got her spinoff. Rhoda's wedding, which was just seven episodes into that show's first season. So that was um, a little bit before this, had an audience of 52 million viewers when she got married, uh, it was the second most watched episode in TV history. Number one was the birth of little little Ricky on I Love Lucy for comparison. So really, really big deal. And I mean, it was crazy. Like the studio was inundated with wedding gifts for Rhoda and her husband, Joe. Uh, there was so much hype going around. Everybody was like having viewing parties and stuff that on, an, on the other station on ABC, Howard Cosell, who was announcing Monday Night Football, made a joke about like everybody's pro- has to probably go and watch Rhoda's wedding instead of this now. Uh, it was just a really, really big deal. And it did not go well though, because <laughs> soon afterwards, the producers realized that the guy they had hired to play her husband, David Grow, was very good looking, but not very funny unfortunately. And so um, they ended up divorcing Rhoda and Joe because he was not funny enough. And it became a show. It quickly went from being a show about a single woman to her finding her love to her getting divorced and being a divorcee. So it really went through a lot. And it was kind of still a pretty big deal to have a divorced main character on television. Just four years earlier than that, they had rejected that premise for the Mary Tyler Moore show wholesale. So, you know, it was, it ended up being this kind of even more edgy show than it meant to be. And also dealt with things like feminism and stuff like that. Like you mentioned, she was a huge feminist activist and she loved to really actually work that into the show. So there was a lot going on at the Rota show, even though I feel like we don't talk about it as much as we should now.
0: And we should probably mention that her mother on the show was played by Nancy Walker, who will guest star our next season on The Muppet Show. Yes. And if anyone who's listening has never seen Rhoda, her sister is played by Julie Kavner, whose unmistakable voice you will recognize immediately from The Simpsons. And that
4: David's cat is named after her. Yes, my cat is named Rhoda Morgan Sternlevy. Important (laughs) important in trivia. (laughs) Jennifer, as our guest, uh, please tell us uh, overall, what did you think of this episode?
3: I really liked it. And, you know, I'm watching mostly in order in my rewatch of the show, which is always interesting. And to me, this feels like, they're starting to find it a little bit more. They're starting to really find their footing and uh, they used her pretty well. You know, I was watching closely. I'm very, very protective of her. I'm very protective of Valerie. She was an angel to me when I was writing my book and I got to have tea with her for hours and she helped me get other people to talk to me for my book. So I was watching carefully and I love that they used her dance past you know, which we can talk about more later. And yeah, I just thought this was a pretty good, pretty good use of her. And overall, I enjoyed it.
4: David, you're our other resident road ahead. How about you?
0: Yeah, I love this episode. Mostly because it feels like a season two episode that snuck into season one. Mm -hmm. We have like a real backstage story that involves the guest star that has like a beginning, middle and end. The standalone sketches are all really great. The, I I just, no notes. It was great. I loved it. Christy.
1: Yeah. This one's a lot of fun. It was nice to finally get out of the box, so to speak, and sort of break out of that rhythmic rut that season one has been in. And gosh, the backstage plot is wild. (laughs) (laughs) There were, there was a surprise around every turn and and I, I loved it. Um, and
4: speaking of (laughs) quaalands. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, this episode, I, I felt like, was 1976 in the best way.
2: So, yeah, I loved it. Michal? <laughs> oh. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. Um, I thought the, the pacing was a lot of fun. It really just kind of zipped along in a way that, yeah, doesn't feel the way season one has mostly been feeling. And I love that they went for a bunch of dumb jokes with gusto. <laughs> like, Kermit's asking for a big hand, and then a big hand just walks across the stage behind him. I think that's wonderful. And I, I really enjoyed, as we've been saying, that there was more of a through line than, than we've been seeing. Um, I it, It's going to sound later like I am down on this episode because some of it doesn't hold up. You would not see an old man with a plant hanging out backstage insisting that he wants to meet this much younger woman. Um, well, well, presumably... You have a while, have you? <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Um, in in spite of all that, I I really like this episode.
4: Yeah, I agree with with all of you. Um, I think this and the Vincent Price episode really lean into to the guest stars' personas and talents, and that's a thing that they're figuring out how to do. I mean, I think arguably so did some of the episodes that we didn't like recently. We just didn't like those those guest stars as much. And but I think also you know finding the right fit of who should be on the Muppet Show, I think, is part of what they're what they're doing really well. My only complaint is that I. I, I wanted more Valerie Harper. Um, and I think there, there might have been room for that. But I, I think as, as we've learned about how the production worked too, I think they, they literally just didn't have time. I wish that they had. But that's really, if, if, that's, if that's my only issue, that's, that's pretty great.
1: Delightfully, we have a lot of music this week. So our very first number is both a backstage number and a guest star number
6: me my cue, sir, cause I got what it takes. Hey, Mr. Producer, Kermit, I'm talking to you, sir. I don't need a lot,
1: only what I got. Plus a tube of grease banana. and a follow spot. Someday, maybe. So yeah, this is Broadway Baby from the musical Follies. It's another song by Stephen Sondheim. The show is from 1971, so it's it's fairly new at this point. It was introduced in that show by uh, Ethel Shute, who was a Broadway star from the 20s and 30s. It's a big standard from that show. And, and David, I, I know there are some discrepancies between the, the version uh, that's done in the show and the version that most people know.
0: Yeah, so this is something that I was a little bit obsessed with because I grew up with the piano vocal selections on my piano for this show, and uh, there are a couple of lines which in in this rendition, it's when she starts doing the different characters with the costume changes, that are probably unfamiliar to most listeners because they were cut from the song during the show's out-of-town tryout, but because the sheet music was already published because they wanted to be able to sell it in the lobby right away, uh, this is the version that was available, and Uh, Because Stephen Sondheim sheet music was not actually big business for many, many years, that was a version that continued to be available like well into the end of the 20th century. So singers who were working from like the commercially available version, which apparently is what The Muppet Show is working from, had these couple extra lines that are not in any like normally recorded version of the song.
1: Yeah, we should probably set up what was actually happening there because <laughs> with just the audio, it, it's a little bizarre. So, yeah, so Val- Valerie comes in backstage, and she really wants to do a, a big opening number and prove herself. And so she does various characters. She does a Mae West impression. She does, a, 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 in the clip, Marilyn Monroe impression that I find unnerving. It's so good. So good. Oh,
4: really? <laughs> I find it
0: horribly embarrassing. <laughs> oh,
1: that's funny. And then she does a maid who has a sort of, like, Ethel Merman voice.
0: <laughs> I was wondering if that was supposed to be some kind of, like, a Lucille Ball tribute.
1: Oh. Okay. Just because huh. of the
0: hairstyle.
1: Yeah. I got Merman off of it, but then... Yeah, I, I did too. I couldn't, like, yeah. connect it to the maid thing. I also, I wanted to throw out, there, there's a really great book about the original Broadway production of Follies called Everything Was Possible by Ted Chapin. And Ted Chapin... Was uh, like a production assistant gopher on that production, and so it occurred to me that he was the, the scooter of follies. <laughs>
4: <laughs> only, only competent. I, I should say about Marilyn Monroe. I, I, truthfully, I don't really know what Marilyn Monroe sounded like. I mostly know what Megan Hilty as Marilyn Monroe on oh, Smash no. sounds like. Um, <laughs> Jennifer, how dare you? But, <laughs>
3: no, I watch it every minute.
4: <laughs> I have watched it at least three times, uh, <laughs> but I there's something like the wig and the cost. I don't know the face that she's making. I was embarrassed for her. It was like, it was like bad Halloween drag. Um, and I want to apologize to the ghost of Valerie Harper for pulling that specific clip that contains both the Mae West depression and <laughs> the Marilyn mm-hmm. Monroe mostly because, and I'm going somewhere positive with this mostly because when she is just doing the number as herself, it is the most delightful thing. Like she is radiating pure joy and charisma and stage presence. And I get why they did the gimmick and it's a cute gimmick, but like Valerie Harper singing this number as Valerie Harper is actually the best.
1: It's pure charm. Like she's not a singer, uh, by any stretch, but, but she just sells it through sheer charisma.
2: Yeah, I think it makes it that much sweeter that she's been doing all of these impressions and then she comes back into her own persona kind of as as though she's been in a daydream and she thinks about someday, maybe I'll make it. It's lovely.
4: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it makes my sense. I just, <laughs> I, the, the, the Catherine McFree of it all was a little too much for me to take. <laughs> I,
0: I did love that it was a, so we said that this is the first time we've seen a guest star perform a number on this backstage set, but it also used the backstage set in ways that we have never Mm -hmm. seen before. She's up and down the stairs a lot. And then the camera pulls out for the big finish and there's flashing lights all around. And then we see all of the regular Muppet players appear as an audience to applaud her. And it was just, it was great direction, which is something that we don't talk about a lot because often the direction of the television show, like not just the direction of the number itself, but like what the cameras are doing and how television is being used as a medium is sort of invisible because it's barely by the book. But here it was it was actually quite artful and, and really kind of made me look at this whole area like differently than I've ever seen it before.
2: Yeah. And the way they, they use the stairs and the way she comes in and out of the dressing room doors. It's so much fun to watch. I definitely gasped at the, the
1: cabaret frame of lights around the set. <laughs> so, this week's UK spot, maybe the most British UK spot we've had so far.
6: <laughs> Is it weakness of intellect, Bertie? I cried. Uh, not meaning you. Mm, yes, yes. Or a rather tough worm in your little inside. With a shake of his poor little head, he replied. A uh, willow. Tick, willow, tick, willow. Mm-hmm. Now, I feel just as sure as I'm sure that my name isn't. Willow, tick, willow, tick, willow. Mm-hmm. That was blighted affection that made him exclaim. You want to do this? Uh, willow, tick, willow, tick, willow. And if you remain... Cal-
1: <sighs> uh... It's so good and so weird. So, so this is Titwillow from The Mikado, which is an operetta uh, by Gilbert and Sullivan from 1885. And it's a satire of British culture set in a bizarro faux Japan that actually looks and sounds nothing like Japan.
0: Here's what I want to say. Yeah. If white people are going to perform The Mikado, this is how they should do it.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, man. It's a, a show that uh, for many, 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 many years, well, since it debuted in 1885 has been largely done in yellow face because it is not actually really set in Japan. There are ways to do it in which it's not in yellow face. So it's complicated
2: much more than the world needs Groucho Marx doing the Mikado. The world needs Muppets doing the Mikado. That would be incredible.
1: Sam, especially. Yes.
0: (laughs) This is just like the perfect Sam, the Eagle performance.
2: Mm. (laughs) And I imagine a lot of it was ad-libbed. He's just looking off stage at somebody who's not there and asking if they want to jump in.
4: <laughs> and we should say the setup is I mean, Ralph sort of tricks him into right telling him it's this this high class number involving a bird, so you know, you should do it. And then he has to sing tit and Dickie and you know, he's embarrassed. I mean, and it's it's Jim Henson and Frank Oz at their best.
0: It also gets the heart of who Sam is, which is he pretends to be high class, but every time he's actually confronted with something that comes from high culture or even like middle culture. He's totally unaware of it and befuddled by it. Mm-hmm.
1: I also would like to point out that there is a variation on the same joke in an episode of Frasier and we'll have a, a clip in the show notes. Love that. Well,
4: Sam Eagle does have a Frasier quality. I guess the other way around, mm. Frasier does have a Sam Eagle quality. <laughs> too. As have well. you ever
1: seen them in the same place at the same time? <laughs> oh. I'm just saying.
0: So, I knew this song from this performance for, I would say, a good two or three decades before I ever encountered the Mikado. And I've never seen the Mikado, but I've certainly like listened to albums of it and never quite figured out how this song fit into the story. And so I just went and looked it up. What story? Well, you know, there, there's something of a story. But, but in the Mikado, the song is used to win over a woman who does not Want to be in love with the man who's singing it. And because it's a story, according to Wikipedia, she is moved by his story of a bird who died of heartbreak. And it just occurred to me that that means that Tit Willow is basically the meadowlark of its day. <laughs> and now the cabarets oh. are reopening. I want to hear Tit Willow at 54 Below once a week. <laughs> That's a very New York center joke. <laughs>
2: We're a
1: very New York-centric podcast.
0: I mean, yeah, I think we're fine. (laughs)
1: I've I've always been keeping this mental list of, like, obscure things that I I would want to request at Marie's Crisis. And a lot of them are things, (laughs) like, from, like, proximatics from the bathrooms are coming. Um, But, uh, yeah, this is going on the list. It's like, tit willow or nothing!
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I also knew this for same, good two or three decades before I ever encountered the Mikado, and then when I did, there was an extra verse in there that was never on the Muppet album that I learned this from. I like, wait, this is a song about suicide? Jesus. Mm, fun for the whole family. This is high culture. Speaking of,
1: we get a solo from Floyd this week. Well,
6: now if I have to swim a river you know I will and if I have to climb If she's a hiding up on a blue berry hill. Am I gonna find her child? You know, I oh, 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 will, cause I've been on a searching. Oh, yeah, searching.
1: Goodness, searching. I love it when Floyd gets a solo. He, he always gives it 150% and <laughs> just goes for it. I love it. So this is Searchin', uh, which is a Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller song that was written uh, for the Coasters. And the Coasters had a hit with it in 1957. It uh, went to number three. And I believe this is our first Lieber and Stoller song. Were there we any certainly others?
0: haven't talked about them on the podcast, so it must be. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so, uh, Lieber and Stoller were huge hit makers, uh, primarily in the fifties and sixties. They they wrote over 70 chart hits, including a lot of Elvis's songs. They wrote Hound Dog and Jailhouse Rock. And they also wrote Kansas City and Yakety Yak also by the coasters and on Broadway, Stand By Me, like a whole bunch of songs that, uh, you would know. And there was actually a Broadway review of their songs called "Smoky Joe's Cafe that was the longest running musical review in Broadway history The Coasters still exist uh, sort of, all but uh, one of the original members have died um, and the one that's still alive is no longer in the group, so the, the group that is uh, currently touring as The Coasters all joined in 2001 or later
4: More like The Foasters. I'll show myself out <laughs>
1: Yeah, some people know this as a a Beatles song. Uh, There is a recording of it that was released with the Beatles anthology material that came out in the 90s. And Paul McCartney actually chose it as one of his Desert Island discs on that radio show in 1982. And uh, it's a song that the Beatles actually used as an audition song uh, when they auditioned for Decca Records in 1962. And yeah, the setup of it is uh, Floyd and a couple of really Creepy whatnot detectives uh, <laughs> are in in a, a forest uh, looking for a little girl Muppet named Mary Louise.
0: And we've seen Mary Louise a few times now. She was in Never Smiled at a Crocodile and Love Isn't with she a Big Blue, in love Frog. With Big Blue Frog. Yeah. yeah. I hate this. <laughs> Sorry, questions <laughs> <name> <laughs> about like their relationship and the age difference.
3: <laughs> it's so creepy. It's so yeah. creepy. And- I mean,
0: it's not the lyrics, I guess, aren't explicit about it
4: being quote-unquote love song.
3: But what are they doing then?
0: Right. Is she his runaway daughter?
2: (laughs) 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 His child bride.
3: I really like how she... I wanted it to end that they didn't find her. Like, you know how she's always, like, popping up? I liked how they did that and they, like, never see her. And I wanted it to just be that they never find her. That would have made me happier.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the song as a song is like she does not want to be found leave her alone and i love a good stalking song like give me give me run for your life by the beatles give me every breath you take but uh, but this like this is not i did not like it and then it's interesting that the wiki calls these detectives they they do not read as detectives to me they're demons they're flashers they're 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 molesters Uh, they're not okay
2: would we have liked this better if they just didn't have red eyes
4: it would have helped. It's the trench coats. It's the mustaches. It's the whole package for it's me. It's also Not like great. the
0: way their hair, like they have hairy eyes. Like they I don't know if it's supposed to look like <laughs> eyelashes, but like there's hair 360 <laughs> degrees around their eyeballs. It is so weird.
1: One of them looks like Maynard G. Krebs.
4: Yes. <laughs> like I understand the song has a backing vocal line, but if this had just been Floyd, it still would have been weird. But the choice to put those specific characters in with him, like pushed it so far over.
0: I think Christy nailed it, which is like, they're supposed to look like beatniks and she looks like a flower child. And I think it's trying to situate it in that world, but it's still, I mean, it's still weird, but I think there's, there's something of a story they're trying to imply that has not transcended the generations for me. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, We also, we, the first, we see them first. The very first thing that happens is that they appear singing, gonna find her. So right off the bat, I'm like, uh, what?
1: <laughs> it's also a very weird and very active use of the uh, field of angst.
2: It's true. <laughs> I was waiting for it. There it is. I love the Floyd performance so much that it's yeah. Uh, it's mm-hmm. easier for me to ignore the the creepy red-eyed detectives, and just, especially when we just hear the audio.
4: The Mary Louise performance is really adorable also.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, you in Danger Girl. <laughs> I do love that. Uh, I just learned as we researched this that the two creepy guys are both being performed simultaneously by Richard Hunt, which is just, I think, a cool feat of puppetry.
2: Mm. Does make it a little bit cuter, but still creepy.
4: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not well, coordinated enough to operate one puppet. So,
3: I mean, maybe does this? This is just echoing our theme of like inappropriate pursuits, which is not uncommon on the show in general of like male characters of. Female character, mostly yeah, and-, and the the pursuit of Valerie in this case, I we like it does feel like a lot of the female guest hosts end up being sexually harassed by male puppets. That's just something that tends to go on and is seen as sort of cute. Of the, the yeah,
4: we have we have discussed this. Yes, about I, the, I the, the how could spot? you not?
3: Like, yeah. <laughs> we're always like, whenever there's a female guest host, we're like, who's going to sexually harass her this time?
0: Right, like this time it's such a refreshing change of pace that it's not Kermit. Right.
3: That's true. We
1: gotta wait and wand a bit, but I I just have to note that I just realized Sam the Eagle, Frasier Crane, it's been there the whole time. Oh
0: my god.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> Whoa. Practice. So yeah, double dose of culture. Yeah,
6: hey, you can get quite an education
1: watching this show. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it it's uh, Show tunes a clock yet again over in Wayne and Wandeville. On a clear day, rise and cry, you, and you'll see where you are. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, on a clear day from. On a Clear Day, You Can See Forever, uh, which is a a musical from 1965, uh, music by Burton Lane, lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Alan J. Lerner was known primarily for his collaborations with Frederick Lowe. They uh, together wrote My Fair Lady and Camelot. And uh, Burton Lane was most famous for this and for Finian's Rainbow. And I also found out that he discovered Judy Garland. He saw her in uh, her older sister's show in Hollywood. She was 13. They, they brought her out and she did a couple of songs. And he called up the music department at MGM, and the rest is history. So, yeah, the joke it here is Wayne and Wanda sing, and it gets foggier and foggier. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> More
2: polluted, maybe?
1: Your
4: There's a factory behind them, isn't there? Isn't it small? Isn't it pollution?
1: Yeah, but it starts coming in from all sides. That's true. Yeah. It is no
2: longer a clear day. That's the joke. Yeah. Yeah.
4: More more commentary on the ecology from the show. <laughs> <channel. laughs>
2: the ecology does it again. Our last number
1: is an utter delight. Mm-hmm. If there's a wrong way to say it, a wrong way to play it, nobody does it like me. If there's a wrong way to do it, right way to mess it up <laughs> nobody does it like me
6: oh. Oh. if there's a wrong
1: way to keep it cool a right way to be a fool nobody does it like me so amazingly this is our second number from the musical seesaw the uh Last one was
0: It's not where you start, it's where you finish.
1: Yes, yes. Music by Cy Coleman, lyrics by my favorite Dorothy Fields. And uh, this was performed in the original production by Michelle Lee, who, unlike Tommy Toon, who sang It's not where you start, it's where you finish, was nominated but did not win a Tony. Her Tony went to Virginia Capers and Raisins. And, yeah, this is absolutely delightful. Uh, Valerie is singing and dancing with a group of Muppets called the Clodhoppers, who, to my eye, look like varying sizes of Grover. <laughs> they're like
0: baby Grover, right? They're- yeah. But, like, something went wrong.
4: Like
2: overgrown baby <laughs> Grover.
4: Like you like you tried to cl- clone Grover in a lab and something, like, didn't quite take.
2: Yeah, varying degrees of the wrong features being the wrong sizes and the wrong... yeah. Colors and
4: things happen. I do not care for the clodhoppers. Let me. We'll get into it. You, you finish,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's all I had to say. Is is okay. they're real funky, but I I find them adorable. Well, before we
0: talk about them, can we talk about Val's green? I don't know if it's a dress, is it a jumper, is it a pants? I suit? think it's a, a jumpsuit. jumpsuit and I love it. Yeah. the jumpsuit. Yeah, uh, I love it, and I also love that because it's so bright. In the opening shots of this number, you can see sort of the shadows like a long kind of like under her arm that show exactly where like the very bright light cuts off to create the effect that Adams talked about in the past that hides yeah. the puppeteers. Mm. It's true. Yeah. And
4: actually that's p- part of why I don't like the, I love, I should say, I love Valerie Harper in this number. No, no notes whatsoever. <laughs> her performance, the outfit, everything perfect. But yeah, we've talked about this is, this is that style of puppetry where the p- puppeteers are in black. The puppets are controlled with rods and uh, in this case, I think they're attached. The, the feet are attached to their feet, um, and we've talked about that before as something I really like. And in this, it just doesn't work for me. Something about the height of the puppets—I find them really awkward and in, in sort of in relation to the human movement. Like I find the way they move sort of jerky and and creepy. And maybe it's partly the the way they look like uh, like Grover's that went wrong somehow. <laughs> I just didn't. I don't like them. <laughs> don't like looking at them. (laughs) And that lighting effect doesn't quite work here. I don't know why. I just, I didn't like it. But yay, Valerie Harper, and yay, Green Jumpsuit.
1: (laughs) Well, well, good news, you'll get to see them again in season three. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe I'll like
4: them better in season three. Maybe it'll it'll work better. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Uh, According to Muppet Wiki, they've made a a few appearances. They also made an appearance with Paula Abdul on Muppets Tonight. And they were uh, part of the the group of Muppets that were designed by Jim Henson for that Broadway show that never happened hmm. uh, along with the, the gawky bird and the um, Bruce Forsyth episode. And then the, were they gazelles in the Juliet Prowse? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I did watch that Paula Abdul number, um, which will be in the show notes and I didn't care for them there either. <laughs> so, <laughs> although I do love Paula Abdul, so, you know, and she's great in it. So yeah, maybe they're <laughs> just not for me.
3: I agree about the clodhoppers. They're really weird. And but I I have I have a real soft spot for musical numbers where people have to pretend to be bad at something that they're good at. Yes. And she does like because that's a real challenge. It's harder to do that than to just be good at it. And we know that she can dance okay, right? But she has to like pretend to be off. And I really enjoyed that. And she does the splits at the end.
2: Yeah. She
3: does she like full left. Left splits in her jumpsuit and i forgot everything that happened before that once i saw that
4: well <laughs> and to your point it's a it's like a comedy split it's like a oh i yeah. I, I can't do this and then she does it which is yes. great
3: it's incredible and i really again i said it before but i love seeing her get to use her dance because i don't think she got to do a ton of it after you know she was famous for being Rhoda on mary tyler moore show that was sort of like it so i know she really loved it and it's cool to see her get to do that here it's
0: also a great choice of a song that sort of plays into the Rhoda Persona, even though mm-hmm. it's not written for the Rhoda Persona.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's that kind of she's she was she always had a problem with this, which is that Rhoda was always supposed to be kind of, as they said, dumpy and frumpy, and like the sidekick and like the not not the one you want to be, but instead Valerie is this gorgeous creature who is amazing and charismatic and perfect. And so like, she was always playing with that kind of like, Oh, I'm supposed to be this little, a little bit of this bumbling persona, but also I'm amazing. So this is perfect for her in that regard, though. She also has to interact with the clod hoppers. So I don't know how that went for her.
0: I will also point out that the song in seesaw once again, uh, Written for a Jewish character.
3: Hmm.
0: Valerie Harper, not Jewish, made her entire career out of playing Jewish women.
3: Yep. Yep. One of the great honorary Jews of our time.
0: We called her in our slack the Jason Biggs of the seventies. It's
3: so it's so true. She was Italian. She's not she said she based the her performances, wrote it even on her Italian uh, stepmother. Just because it was like the New Yorkness, you know, that's, that's where she got that. And yeah, I, I'll, every time I've talked to, to Jewish people about her, though, they love, they love her. They love the character. They love the performance. So few. Yeah, It's
0: hard to fault her for it. She's so yeah. good at it, you know?
3: Yeah, exactly. Ready? Three, two, one, fire!
2: That sound means it's time once again for a shot out of a cannon. Although we had a a few fewer canonical bits than usual today, and a bit more of the backstage plot, which I think benefits this episode. Our opening gags: we've got Gonzo wielding a giant mallet and failing to do anything with other than collapse under it. We've got Fozzie uh, mentioning, perhaps inadvertently, Valerie Harper's classmate from the Young Professionals School, saying that if Tuesday Weld married Frederick March's grandson, she'd be. Tuesday, March the 2nd, which is very of its time in that I didn't know who any of those people were until oh. I read Valerie Harper's <laughs> Wikipedia page. <laughs> Sorry, everyone.
0: I mean, this was a whole genre of joke, right? Like there's the, what I think of as the more famous variation about if Ella Fitzgerald married Ellen Funt, she'd be Ella <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. What a famous uh-huh.
2: joke. Well, I know. <laughs> There we go. Anything from our yay correspondent?
4: Apparently I'm this week's yay correspondent. We have two clips. Go for it, Adam. One from the beginning of the show.
2: So it really makes me happy to
5: introduce to you, Miss Valerie Harper! Ah!
0: More of a scream than a yay. That does feel like a clip that you've been playing over and over and over again, even though it's not the same one that you have been playing. Correct. <laughs> Just
4: been um, screaming a lot. And uh, one from the end of the show.
5: It's Bowery Harper! Yay!
4: It's a little lackluster.
2: That's an honest-to-goodness yay. But yeah. that's
4: a bonafide yay, yeah.
2: It's, it airs a little bit towards the, eh? Eh? <laughs> <laughs> about her?
4: Yeah, the energy is not quite what we're used to, but it's it's getting there.
2: <laughs> Over in our backstage plots, we've got some firsts here where Statler emerges from his box and the guest star appears on the backstage set. So it's very sweet that they pose Valerie Harper as uh, an up-and-comer who really wants to make it in show business. And it works, and it works for her persona. It still feels a little off to me that she has to sabotage Bertha Beasley and her Galloping Geese and then audition for Kermit in order to get a spot doing a musical number on the show, when usually they, they treat their guest stars with some reverence. Do we have feelings about this?
6: You know, I'm not filming Rhoda this week. I got a hiatus.
5: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Did you get it lifting something? Oh, no. Maybe you should see a doctor.
6: That means that we're on vacation. And, um, well, you see, I'm a total Muppet freak.
5: Everyone in this joint is a freak. Uh, George, this is, uh, Valerie Harper. Come She's on. on hiatus. I'm George Janther. I'm on vitamin E. Move it. Uh, uh, you have to, uh, forgive George there. Uh, okay, uh, you were saying, Valerie.
6: Yes, I, I was hoping that uh, you might let me do a
1: big opening number on the show.
5: Oh, well, we had planned to open a show with uh, Bertha Beasley and her galloping geese. Yes. Uh, but actually, uh, Bertha isn't here yet, and the show's about to start.
6: She won't be here, Kermit. Uh, what? I uh, scotch-taped a bushel of birdseed to her body. Even as we speak, geese are pecking her into oblivion. It's
0: just some masterful Line delivery of a very difficult, very alliterative line to give. A bushel of birdseed to her body. Well, also, like, <laughs> Valerie Harper straight up murdered a woman. be <laughs> And Kermit is delighted. The face that Kermit makes at that is <laughs> great. Is this the first time we have this, the scheduled performer's not here, so let's do something else instead? Because that it certainly becomes a running trope of the show. I think so. I think to to make point. I mean
4: I, I I yes, I think right she shouldn't have to work this hard and sing Broadway baby for it. Um but what I actually thought I thought it was in the clip but it it's right after this. She says, you know, I love TV. TV is great. Rhoda's great, but I I miss being on stage and I miss singing and dancing. So I think the idea and if I'm if I'm remembering correctly this this is also going to become a hallmark of the show later on. I think the idea is that she wants you know, she wants to do something different than what they had in mind. Now, should that have been discussed before she showed up
2: backstage? Before yes. says, the show is starting now, so I guess you can go on stage.
4: Yes, absolutely. But I, I think that I think that's what they're going for. But yeah, I admit the, t- the timing is a little off. <laughs> they didn't have email.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it it makes her numbers work better. It makes you root for her more. So I'm not opposed to it. It's just a bit of a turn. Because usually it's like, oh, it's a guest star. We're so excited that we're here. And now they're going to sing a musical number. And now there's a story behind it, which I think we've all agreed is kind of nice. So meanwhile, in our other backstage plot, we learn some things about Statler.
7: (laughs) What a beautiful woman. You know, Waldorf, Mm. I think I'll go backstage and meet her.
6: (laughs) Why, you old fool. She wouldn't have anything to do with you. Besides, I was thinking of going backstage.
7: (laughs) You, you, well, you're old enough to be her grandfather. Uh, You geriatric joker. We'll settle this. We'll flip for her.
4: Okay. Then he literally flips. I just want to point out that what they're responding to is Broadway Baby, which she has performed backstage.
2: I mean, but then the Muppets all applaud her. It's kind of accepted that that's their opening number. I I mean, we've lost the thread on whether this is television or live theater, and it, it seems to matter less and less.
4: Right. We've talked about that before, so I just wanted to point out that that's what's going on here.
2: It's a fair point. Statler decides to, I was going to say buck tradition, but apparently this is in the theatergoer's manual that this is something he gets to do. Just show up backstage and accost the guest star. We'll
0: we'll remember this when in later seasons the Muppets actually install a doorman backstage.
2: <laughs> They'll remember it too. True. Uh, he shows up backstage with a bit of a gift for Valerie Harper.
5: Wow, one of our hecklers has turned into a stage door johnny Uh, Miss Harper is up in her dressing room there rehearsing her lines
7: Well, I've been rehearsing my lines too for when I meet her How's this? Hiya, toots You're some kind of hot-looking tomato
5: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very old line
7: Well, I'm a very old man
5: Hey, listen, stage door johnnies are supposed to bring roses What is that thing?
7: Oh, roses are ordinary I'll have you know I've dated and whined and dined Some of the finest performers on the legitimate stage Hayes, Langtree, Barrymore Wait a minute, you dated Ethel Barrymore? No, Lionel <laughs> Ethel was busy that night <laughs> To tell you the truth, we didn't dance much
2: either Is this a revelation for anybody? I was
0: going
7: to say
2: it first
0: <laughs> Does we didn't dance much imply that they just went straight to fucking? I think so <laughs>
2: Oh, I mean, I thought he was disappointed and was hoping for more dancing. <laughs> Which all either right,
4: reading have... works.
2: Let, let's let's hear the confirmation clip here.
7: Well, you could have avoided all this if you'd let me meet Miss Harper when I asked. The only person you're going to meet back here is Tarzan. Ah!
6: Ah!
4: I hope he's a good dancer. So yeah, Statler <laughs> is canonically bisexual.
2: Yeah, and he is just hoping for a good dance partner. That's right. All that is to say,
4: <laughs> I have a theory that because it would be really easy to read to read that Barrymore line sarcastically. So I have a theory that it was written sarcastically, and Richard Hunt, who was gay, mm. chose to read it straight as it were, <laughs> thus making Statler canonically bisexual.
0: I like that theory, I yeah. mean, who knows? Yeah. but I, it also might be that he like sort of stared them down. And like dared them to correct him, you know, like, yeah, well, and we've, we've encountered other moments when clearly another take
4: was needed and they didn't have time. Right. So he might've just been like, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it very much.
2: <laughs> it's I'm team Statler now. So by the end of the episode, uh, the, the berry Bush has eaten everything in sight backstage and it turns into a jungle. Hence the Tarzan joke. We don't know whether or how this is ever resolved. Just that, in the, the closing of the episode, Statler uh, makes his way onto the stage and is holding the plants firstborn to give to Valerie Harper, uh, which I guess implies that we've got a little shop situation on our hands and we're all doomed. I, for one, welcome our plant overlords. I, I mean, the,
4: this whole thing is weird, but like it's weird in a good way. I You know, I don't love that it hinges on Statler being a creep, but we only see him with Valerie actually being like pretty sweet. And she deflects him really nicely. Like that one moment of entitlement that we heard in that Tarzan clip is directed at Kermit. Um, I mean, it's, it's not good, but like it's directed at Kermit, not at Valerie Harper, and so it it's a lot better than it could be. <laughs> Just thinking of real world fan situations. I don't know. I I I remember reading about. it. I think it's actually this is actually in our like our document where we track all the episodes. Like in the notes, I think I wrote Staller and Waldorf are creeps. Because <laughs> I just read the synopsis in the
0: in the Muppet Wiki, and I was pleasantly surprised how this turned out. I also love the way the backstage again, the way the backstage set looks and is photographed when the plant takes over. Mm-hmm. It's just again, it's a different it's a different view on this set that we've gotten very familiar with. We see it from a different angle, and it just looks I don't know, kind of beautiful when it's taken over by the plant. There's also this one moment when they all are reacting to the plant taking over, where Wanda, played by Aaron Oscar, is on the upper level and just does the best, like, oh, no, there's a plant taking over (laughs) cake, And she's not the focus of the scene at all, but I cannot look anywhere else.
2: Yeah, and Kermit is hacking his way towards his desk with a little helmet on. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun. Okay, we've got a Swedish chef bit. The chef is decorating a chocolate cake and then tries to cut into it. The cake is... Taking no guff, he starts yelling at the chef in what the wiki tells me is Japanese and the Swedish chef uh, replies by flattening it with his trusty cake and smoosher, which is a baseball bat. This is a fun bit. I don't know whether the cake is yelling in real or fake Japanese or whether that's racist. Somebody <laughs> tell me. I
0: It, it I don't like, sh- made my like, racism antenna <laughs> vibrate a little bit. I also don't understand why it's Japanese because there's nothing Japanese about the
4: right. cake or the bit.
3: I mean, we're not sure it's Japanese, right?
0: Or even even why it would be fake Japanese. Well, the, the tone of was. voice is certainly like it is the way that comedians would fake Japanese in the style of like John Belushi. Samurai? What was it? Samurai Deli? So, yeah, Samurai Deli. Yeah,
1: Samurai, yeah, Samurai. Yeah. yeah,
0: like it's the same. Yeah. Same. Is that same? Yeah. St- set of sounds okay. yeah
1: that. but it's
0: not a japanese cake <laughs> i don't the, i
4: didn't get the, it
1: <laughs> there's also a point in the laugh track where this one guy laughs like really abrasively to the point where <laughs> i was like is there somebody in the room with me? yes like-
4: <laughs> yes there is the muppet morsels confirm this and we had this question about the phyllis diller sketch that while there is a laugh track you can often hear the crew laughing for real and apparently, the Swedish chef was particularly popular among the crew. They would mm-hmm. often come down to the set to watch. So, yes, there is one guy <laughs> laughing really loud.
2: I mean, and he's having a great time. I don't know.
0: Disney didn't find this racist enough to put a warning before this episode, so he has that in his favor.
4: I just wish it made sense. Also, when the cake is smashed, you can clearly see the hole in the counter through oh, which was
2: was performed. I was so busy looking at the cake and at the Chef's antics, which is what everybody came there to watch and laugh at.
4: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, who doesn't love this way of chef? I just I just thought I'd point that out because, you know, that's what we're here for.
2: That's what we I'm do. I'm not
4: mad about it. Like, it's a puppet show. <laughs> it's fine. It's just, it's just there.
2: <laughs> you can see their rods. <laughs> what do they think they are?
4: It's okay. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right. We've got a couple of Muppet news flashes. In the first of these, Valerie Harper plays Mrs. Klinger of Wisconsin, whose husband has turned into a rug.
7: I'm just going to
6: have to sue for divorce, that's all. Uh, why is that, Mrs. Klinger? Because he does not
2: match the drapes. Can't argue with dirty. that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so I have a perhaps naive question about this. Is it, is it inherently dirty or has it become dirty? Like, was this an expression that simply meant what it means before we turned it dirty? I feel like... By making it a metaphor?
2: Saying the carpet matches the drapes must have been a phrase before somebody made it a dirty phrase.
4: This is what I'm asking,
2: but I don't like, really I understand. Guess. I
4: understand the metaphoric use of the term, but did that come from it being, a well, thing there that, is
0: a Quora page. Is there any underlying meaning to the phrase? I wonder if the carpet matches the curtains. If so, what is it?
4: Well, I guess, obviously it would mean, does the carpet match the curtains? It's pretty straightforward.
3: <laughs> but When did that become a thing is the question. That's what
4: I'm saying. Like,
3: did we talk about that before? When did we start to- being concerned about that?
2: What if it came from this episode?
4: Like I watch House Hunters <laughs> and people say it, but now I don't know if they're saying it ironically or not. Like
2: <laughs> It does have a certain
1: 70s sleaziness to it. Like it, it wouldn't surprise me if it were already uh, in the lexicon, as it were.
2: True. Yeah, the the way she's playing it, it feels like there's a little eyebrow waggle in there perhaps.
0: I don't even know where to research
4: no, like, there's there's no, I'm a, We're
3: trying like to Google that. it right now. Um, I mean, I'm are, just gonna
0: say,
4: go ahead.
3: Jennifer, no, sorry. there's. It's so far I haven't found anything except for the fact that there are other people searching for this. You know, when it fills in your Google, <laughs> right? Like other people have searched for carpet matches the drapes origin, which is what I'm trying to <laughs>
2: get. Oh, I hope you're. Searching I will it say in there, there is a the Ox-
0: Oxford English Dictionary has an entry on it. <laughs> I like. I actually like the,
4: and I'm usually the the dirty one. I like the innocent read of this as a Muppet joke that she would divorce her husband for not matching the drapes. I find that very yeah. funny. I also find it funny as a double entendre. But I also, I, I, I just want to, I want to put in a, a vote for the innocent read.
2: And this is one of the few uses of the guest star in the Muppet Newsflash that actually kind of works. It's cute. We've got a little bonus newsman moment where he, he dashes out, looks at his piece of paper and sees that it's blank and apologizes and leaves, which is more fun than there is no news tonight. So well, certainly to more fun than seconds.
0: the third time in a row getting news tonight.
2: Right. So I'm not opposed to it. We've got another poem by Rolf. Uh, which is canonical in that it is making its second and final appearance in The Muppet Show. Uh, Previously, Ralph has recited his poem, Silence, on the Paul Williams episode. And here we've got a poem called The Butterfly.
6: I held out my hand and motioned it to land. And as it did, I looked for another butterfly with which to mate it. I couldn't find one, so I sat down and ate it.
2: (laughs) This is a filthy episode. (laughs) Anyway, this angers an enormous butterfly who traps Ralph in a net and drags him off stage. Butterfly's not into it.
4: <laughs> the butterfly's little face is so cute.
2: He's so angry.
3: I just want to use this show to work out something that I've been thinking about, um, <laughs> which is, again, I'm watching these shows and, like, you know, my partner and I talk a lot about them, but that's, that's the only outlet I have. Um, I really have fallen in love with Ralph. In re-watching the show I had not remembered I don't think he gets as much Kind of like time In the Muppet movies To really shine And this is like Some of his piano work Is just so beautiful And the way his like Ears flop around And he's so human And he's like He, he feels like this Fully formed You know Mature Male Muppet In this way that the Others don't <laughs> That's the only way I can explain Like, like he could like send you a drink across the, across the bar, you know, like, you know, you could really, I feel like he should have dated more. I feel like he maybe should have pursued Piggy. I know that's controversial, (laughs) but I think that he could have given Piggy the kind of love and attention that she deserved. And maybe she wouldn't have to fly off the handle all the time trying to get Kermit's attention, which was futile. Um, I think they would have made a really nice couple. That is my Mm -hmm. controversial opinion. And definitely super pro Rolf. I really wish, I mean, I really wish he had sort of gotten more time in other venues, but he's just, ah, I love him. This is not, it's not about his poetry. I'm not sure the poetry bits are like (laughs) that for me with him. But some of his his piano performances, like, are genuinely touching, which is so weird. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and you know, Ralph
0: had already been a big star prior to The Muppet Show, thanks to The Jimmy Dean Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he had been a regular on The Jimmy Dean Show and was, right. was really the first nationally famous Muppet. Uh, so this, we're already seeing Ralph sort of like, I don't want to say past his prime, but he's... <laughs> In his, in his prime.
3: Right. He's like,
2: but, but he's no, he's, he's, older, he's not, yeah. yeah. You
0: know, he, he, he is, he is sort of the, the older brother to the rest of them. Yeah.
3: And that's what I feel like I'm getting from Rolf is just because he had been around for so long that like, he felt like he did. He feels like, you know, the chief on Grey's Anatomy or something on the show. Right. He's like, <laughs> he's like been around the block. He could tell these kids a few things, but he's going to just, sit back and let them make their own mistakes you know like that's that's the energy <laughs> I'm getting from him. you're yeah.
1: definitely among friends i, yeah. I was yeah. convinced that he was going to make out with phyllis diller So,
4: yeah
0: i don't see him with piggy but now i'm i'm like many possibilities phyllis diller is one for sure i, I feel like rolf is also maybe someone who does not have long-term relationships but has oh. quite
3: a few notches on
4: his oh. on his
0: uh but drink. he makes
4: them all feel very down. special. They
3: all think right? they're the one at the time,
0: right? Like, he's not like oh Doctor Teeth. He's very much, yeah. No, he—he's the Frank Sinatra. That's not, right.
3: That's not right. the
0: John Lennon, right? Like,
3: mm-hmm. I'm just saying, I would not turn Rolf down. Like, this is. If he,
2: <laughs> yeah, no. Who among us?
3: <laughs> right? Wouldn't kick him out of
2: bed for eating dog biscuits?
3: Exactly. Exactly. That's all I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad I am glad I got this worked out. Thank you. This Thank is,
2: you. Yeah. Good. you know, here we get to you. talk about
0: the horniest part of any Muppet episode.
4: I feel like we should add you to our Slack so we can just be here for you throughout your journey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Feel free to join that party. <laughs> it's mostly weird gifts. Meanwhile, at the dance, uh, we've got a lot of frackles losing their heads today. Uh, earlier, the green frackle backstage blew his top, and now... Uh, he's here in a wig, played by Aaron Oscar, and dancing with the blue frackle who gets taken out by a baseball bat. A definite improvement! <laughs> I love the read of that line so much. <laughs> I use it in my life, and I, like, I had to rewatch this episode to remember why, because it's, it was buried so deeply in my brain. But I always thought the phrase definite improvement was really funny, and now I've figured out why. Anyway, if you're really wondering why I dug this episode so much, uh, here she is, world.
7: (laughs) You know, I just can't seem to hold on to a guy. What is it, huh? I'm a real good looker, a neat dresser, and a great cook. Come on, tell me now, what's my problem?
6: You're too introverted.
7: Yeah, maybe you're right.
4: (laughs) We also get uh, Mildred dancing with Dr. Teeth, which, you know, we are Mildred's dance, and I just felt that was a pairing worth noting. Also, does that mean that Jim Henson is performing Mildred?
0: Cause at the dance is usually the same person.
4: It's, it right?
2: sounded like Frank.
0: It's usually the same person performing both, but I think that's that Mildred is the exception because I don't know, be, just because she's usually held so far away from whoever her partner right. is. Right. And it
4: didn't sound like Jim Henson, which is why I thought it was weird. And that's why I brought it up. But yeah, also I,
0: it's just super weird to see the two of them dancing together. Although, is that the first time? Because I feel like we've talked about them as a pairing. She danced with um, Zoo, right? Or Floyd? I don't know. We talked about Dr. Teeth fucking his way through all the women of the Muppet Show. It's true, we did. did thought that it was because Mildred specifically was paired with him at some point. And we are
4: like, possible.
0: That's weird, but also plausible. She also
4: calls him Dr. Tooth, and he corrects her, which I also thought was very funny.
2: Which means she doesn't remember him from last time.
4: Right?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which he deserves.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> in there our head headcanon about Dr. Teeth. Um, we've got a, a quick little backstage bit where Valerie is looking for her comb, and she's introduced to Bernie the Makeup Man, who's also known as the Easter Bernie.
5: Oh, finally, they gave Hilda the pinch line. What do you mean, punch line? No, I mean the pinch line. How come?
2: <laughs> ah! We're also held as Yeah, dance. I guess what you're not seeing really or hearing awful. is that there was a character called Bernie who hopped on handed Valerie Harper an egg and hopped off, and then Valerie Harper got pinched by Animal. But yeah, we just wanted to hear Hilda. Well, now that we've
0: gone through everything that one could possibly want to go through in this episode, have we missed anything? Anyone have final thoughts?
4: Uh, uh, At the beginning, I alluded to um, some continuity that wasn't, and then we didn't talk about it. So we have our own continuity that wasn't. Um, The um, the three-headed monster from the Vincent Price episode makes a brief appearance backstage, uh, which was continuity in this order, but not in the air order. So... Yay. But clearly
0: wasn't that important because... Clearly uh, not,
4: because we forgot about it. Um, and just uh, because we've talked about choreographers in the past, this episode was choreographed by Irving Davies, whose work I don't believe we have yet seen on The Muppet Show.
2: And I will give my favorite Muppet of the Week award to, even though it's always the loud lady in my heart, but this week, George has just such great one-liners with everybody here is a freak, or when the, they say the plant was going to eat everything in sight, and he says it reminds me of my brother-in-law, which is not a... Not a great look, but in 1976 uh, humor. That's funny. And it's just a well-read.
0: He's he's so good.
2: Yeah, we're going to miss George.
0: (laughs) Well, before we go, I just want to say thank you to our guest, Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Jennifer, is there anything you want to plug or just tell us a little bit more about your most recent book?
3: Yes, thank you. I have a book that came out recently called When Women Invented Television, which is about – the time between 1948 and 1955 when women did lots of stuff in television because it was not profitable yet. And so whenever you see a lot of women doing something, it means the men have not gotten there or have already left. And in this case, they had not gotten there yet. So it's kind of a hidden figures for early television. I tell the stories of four female pioneers in particular from that time. And um, you get to learn a lot of nerdy stuff about early television and, it even really tracks right up into the Muppet era. And I love watching this for this reason, because that was the era of the variety show and the live show. And so they're still kind of doing some jokes on stuff like that. And like Milton Berle is a guest on the Muppet show and he goes all the way back to this time. So it's really fun. And you get to learn about some women that you may not know as much about in television history. And you can find all of that and more, at my website, jenniferkarmstrong.com.
0: We'll have a link to that in our show notes too. And let me just tell you listeners, I am about halfway through the book. Uh, so I don't know if they actually successfully invent television or not. Don't spoil the ending. <laughs> 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 but uh, it's really, it's it's a great read. It reads like a novel. And uh, I, I'm just really enjoying it. And
2: I think yeah. you will too. Ditto to thank all you. of that. I'm about halfway through. Haven't found out how it ends, but I'm, I'm learning so much and loving it.
3: Hey, thank you yeah. guys.
2: Thank you for coming on. This is so great. This was really fun. And thank you for listening to this episode
0: of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Twiggy episode, where we will be joined by NPR's Glenn Weldon. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levin. Uh, I was really mumbly in that
4: episode, it turns out. I was not on anything. Just tired.